What's up, what's up, y'all? This is Dave. And this is Dever. And you're listening to the Dave and Dev Podcast. Dave and Dev. Gotta keep it real like Dave and Dev. On my job like Dave and Dev. Tell no lie like Dave and Dev. Some days I wanna stay in bed, but I get ready for the day ahead. I wanna complain, but I pray instead. Then I'm on my way to that Dave and Dev. And it go like, I don't need a crew. Don't play by he say, she say rules. Complain, no, we can't do. I'd rather have faith while G-O-D make moves. So please stay cool. All, all I do is speak the truth on things I see they do. I'm a sinner myself, no lie, I need grace too. We lit like EKU. Yeah. What's up, y'all? Good afternoon, Devon. What's going on, Dave? How you been, man? I'm good, man. How about yourself? I'm good. This is a little different. We're recording on a Sunday, so right after church. But I'm yeah. but I'm excited about today's episode. Yeah, me too, man. Me too. Well, listen, before we get too far into it, let's just give everybody a little bit of update on our Instagram contest. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Devran. If you've been following us on Instagram or if you've listened to one of our previous episodes, you know that we've been doing this hip-hop contest. And so, Dave, why don't you tell them who the winner of the first week is? So the winner of our first contest is Titus Haskins with his remix to Lecrae's Set Me Free. We're going to play that next. But if you want a chance to take over the throne, you need to send us your favorite 8 to 16 bars and we will feature you on our Instagram page against Titus this week. Let's get it. you go ahead and set the show off who we got on today man all right today we have a politics professor from john brown university in arkansas and the assistant director at the center for faith and flourishing mr daniel bennett or dr daniel bennett i apologize it's fine (laughs) I don't want you know you, you know you you earn the, the credentials. So I don't I don't want to disrespect you all right right away. No man, it's good to be with you all. 
Yeah, man. Um, so welcome to the podcast. Um, you are you are from Portland. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Portland, Oregon, uh, just outside of Portland, actually, Beaverton, uh, home of Nike. Um, moved to Illinois for grad school, uh, moved around the country, spent a little time in uh, Kentucky where I met you too. Yep. And uh, have been now at JBU in Northwest Arkansas for almost four years. We got here in August of 2016. It's been four years? It has. Wow, wow that's, that's crazy. It's nuts. Time flies, dude. <laughs> it's nuts. That's Dang. wild. So, are you? Do you miss the Supersonics at all? Sure, I love that rivalry. <laughs> As a Blazers fan, right? I mean, you know, being in Portland, growing up with with that team, there was really, you know, I guess I guess the Lakers were the bigger rival, but at least I thought they were. Uh, but they're only three hours north on I-5. Uh, that was the I-5 rivalry. You see a lot of Portland fans at Key Arena when they play up there. You see a lot of Sonics fans uh, at the Coliseum and then later the Rose Garden when they played in Portland. Uh, but, yeah, I'll always have a soft spot for Seattle, uh, the Sean Kemp and Gary Payton days. Yeah. Port- Portland may be a more miserable sports city than Cleveland is. Ooh. Well, now – you know, now now that y'all took care of the took care of the title drought, um, it just seems like there's been a lot of gut punches for Portland. Yeah, we <laughs> needed Portland. the cheat code. We we need the cheat code in LeBron James to get it done. But yeah, that that, done. that worked out pretty well for yeah. you guys. <laughs> I mean, Greg, um, Greg Oden, you know, you had him for for a hot second. <laughs> I I remember exactly where I was when I found out that Portland had won the lottery. I was at a I was at a baseball game with my brother uh, in. It, uh, it, in Texas at the Texas Rangers. And my buddy called me this is when we called people on phones. And uh, <laughs> he, he said, Hey, we won the lottery. And the first thought was, wasn't, Oh, now we have to choose between Durant and Odin. It was, Oh, we get Odin. Right. Cause there really wasn't debate at the time. I mean, I know people talk about, well, you know, D- Durant, obviously there was a lot of he was going to be the best scorer. But at the time, it was still kind of a center-driven league. Odin was the best center prospect since probably David Robinson. Yeah. He so was, he was hurt. Half, he maybe, I don't know. Season. Yeah. Yeah. I remember – I remember. Uh, I just, so this is funny. I just started dating uh, my now wife, and I don't know why she stuck around after after this. But uh, <laughs> I, was in, I was in my apartment when I, when I saw the news that he had uh, – hurt his knee and he was gonna miss the, the entire season you know before his rookie year and you know she had, she was she had just uh, arrived and she came in and i was just so despondent i was sad and she's like oh man is something like is your, is your family okay what's going on i said yeah i mean greg odin's all he's lost for the season oh, she <laughs> said who <laughs> oh it's a sports thing oh okay gotta oh. gotta love wives and, and yeah oh man sports <laughs> It's gotten better. It's gotten better. Yeah. Well, okay, Love so it. real quick, if you had to name your top three Blazers of all time, who would they be? All right. Um, in no particular order, uh, yeah. and these are guys that I've watched. Okay. Uh, I'll, do, I'll do three plus an honorable mention. Okay. Um, so going back in the 90s, uh, Sabonis. Okay. Vita Sabonis. Um. He was just such a fun center to have on the team. He shot threes, beautiful passer. Um, he was ahead of his time. He was way ahead of his time. And in the 80s, I mean, if he came over 
you know, when he got drafted in 86, I, I think Portland wins a couple of titles at that point. That's probably uh, true. He was so, so good when in his prime. Um, once he got over in 96, he had put on a lot of weight and had a lot of knee injuries. And he was like 30 or 31 in his rookie season. But I loved watching him play. Um, in the 2000s, uh, got to be Brandon Roy. Yeah. Uh, just loved his game. He always seemed like he was doing things so effortlessly. Uh, it's like he was seeing the game in slow motion. He always looked like he was moving a lot slower than he was, and he could still get around guys. It was just a really fluid, old-school game, but super athletic, really fun fun guy to watch. And now I got to put Dame on the list. I love watching Dame play. Just the, the chip on the shoulder, the fearlessness, just the embracing the, you know, the distance shooting. Um, I love having that toughness in a player. You can just tell he just wants to win at all costs. He's committed to Portland. Love big game, Dame. Oh yeah, he's he's Dame such a dollar. He's a guy. If he were ever got, he's a guy. If we if he ever leaves, you know, through a trade or free agency, like you, you got to keep rooting for him. Like you for just sure. you just want him to win a title. Yeah, yeah. You just want it. An honorable mention. I'll put Damon Stoudemire in there being a player. Oh, so Clyde yeah, Drexler yeah. doesn't get anything. Well, I mean, Drexler was great, but again, I grew up in the in the late. I mean, I I was a kid when the I was six years old in the '92 Finals, yeah. so I don't really remember a lot of that early '90s Blazers teams. Man, for sure. Like We're start I, off the podcast yeah. with no Bill Walton, no. Yeah, Bill. yeah, no Bill Walton. Although he's fun, Clyde. I would have put uh, you know Maurice Lucas on that list. Just a tough guy getting fights all the time. That's a good guy to have. Um, Jerome Kersey, you know, some of those players. But I think just for me personally, I'll put Dame, Brandon Roy, and, and Sabonis in there. And I'll, yeah, I'll put Dame, uh, uh, Dame Sotomayor. I love board. the jailblazers, the early 2000s when. Oh, Rashid. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know, you didn't know if they were gonna, if you were going to lose the game by 30 or someone was going to fail a drug test right after. You, you just, well, <laughs> my favorite. My favorite, it was a precursor to the JL Blazers, but uh, actually this was in, this was in uh, Jordan's last season. This was in the 98 season. Uh, Portland went on the road. They took a road trip, and they beat Chicago in Chicago. And this was right after they had traded for Stoudemire. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh. Like, they beat the Bulls in Chicago. That's tough. You know, that man, they're, they're going to be good. And then the uh, very next game, they played Indian- Indianapolis, and they lost – uh, and I'm not making this up, 124 to 59. Oh, shoot. <laughs> you got to love those 90 scores. Man. Yeah, it was the one of the only times in NBA history where a team had doubled the opponent's total score. Oh, goodness. It was, <laughs> it was, it was bad. That's great. So those are good, good, good times. Absolutely. Well, hey, listen, while we're talking about Portland, I guess we can get a little uh, more serious here real quick. Like, can you give some insight into what's happening in Portland right now? Like it is seeming to be madness from the outside looking in. Yeah. And in many ways I feel like an outsider, uh, you know, sure. I, haven't, I haven't lived in Portland in you know, over 10 years now, obviously whenever I visit, it feels like I'm home uh, just seeing, seeing places and being in, being in spaces where I grew up. It, you do have that connection whenever you see this stuff on the news but, you know, Portland's always had a, a proclivity for protesting. Um, like Seattle, there, there is this Northwest streak of uh, not trusting government, uh, just being skeptical of things. 
Eugene, Oregon is also infamous for that. And, you know, when this was first getting started and these protests turned, you know, a little bit more violent and have continued in, in some ways to do that, uh, my first thought was, oh, it's the Eugene people. It's, it's the folks from Eugene who were coming up and messing up the, the protests and just trying to find an excuse to destroy things. Um, but what's happening lately, uh, it's pretty wild to observe. My friend actually works at the federal courthouse. Oh, wow. Uh, that's where his office is. And he, you know, he's just saying it's, it's nuts to try to just to, to go downtown and, and go to work there every day and just see the damage from the night before. He doesn't go in that much anymore just because of COVID. Um, but he's had to go into, he's had to go in the office a few times. And uh, it, it's pretty wild to get the reports from, uh, from him. Um, but I think what you're seeing with the, with the, uh, the, pre the, the federal presence there, uh, it makes sense for a couple of reasons. First, you know, President Trump has said we need to quell the violence and unrest in these cities. And I think he's seeing Portland as kind of a, a trial run to say how much can we do uh, to uh, try to stop protesters or violent protesters, rioters, whatever you want to call these folks who are graffitiing and, and engaging in, you know, bad conduct or whatever. Um, but also it, it plays, it, it's good politics for him. Cause you know, if you, if you ask the average Trump voter, their opinion of Portland, Oregon or Seattle, Washington, they're going to say, oh, it's these liberals who don't care about it. You know, our country, they don't like our country. And so if you're going to flex your muscle with federal law enforcement, might as well do that in Portland. Um, so it's sad to see the videos. It's sad to see the footage, uh, and the accounts there. Uh, I just can't believe it's gone on for so long, almost two months now. Yeah, right. And Portland is a is a very very white city. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. And, Especially and when you compare it to other big big cities around the country. Yeah, it, it's extremely white. And it, and they're protesting for Black Lives right now. Yeah. So this is so this is the irony in the whole thing is like I, I'm a huge fan of when people step up for advocacy for for. Uh, for something that they feel like is an injustice, no matter you know who they are, and uh, like the way I feel is that the president is putting this federal presence, like you said, like on on its on America's own citizens, and so so you being in politics, okay, you understand these things much much more than Dave and I do. Um, so like for someone who's listening, saying, well. Portland is just expressing their First Amendment rights. Uh, where where are they out of bounds? Or if are they out of bounds? Like who's out of bounds? Is it the president or the protesters? Because somewhere, like I think something's went wrong. Yeah, and honestly, the answer to that question depends on. It really does depend on who you sympathize more with, uh, President Trump or the protesters. I mean, if if you sympathize with with protesters, you're going to say this is a incredible overreach on the part of the federal government. Uh, you're going to say that this is an attempt to try to stoke violence and, you know, basically push and prod uh, these, these protesters until things turn bad. And then you can kind of crack the whip and, and you know, bring down the hammer. That said, you know, if you if you if you're prone to, to criticize uh, protesters who are protesting things that you don't really care that much about or you think, ah, they just need to get over this. 
then you're going to be much more sympathetic to, to President Trump's uh, to rhetoric and explanations here, saying we have to restore order to the city of Portland. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is another political explanation. You know, Portland is a very white city, but it's also a very progressive and liberal city yeah. uh, politically. So uh, anytime President Trump could say, yeah, look at all this nonsense going on in Portland, we got to blame Democrats for this. Uh, Republicans, especially partisan Republicans who are supportive of the Trump administration, are going to look at that federal action and say, yeah, this is absolutely warranted when uh, and I don't like playing this game too much because it's you don't know the counterfactuals, really. But I remember uh, conspiracy theories that President Obama was going to mobilize the military in some cities and some places around the country. And people freaked out when it was just a hypothetical, right? Yeah. Now you're seeing it happen in, in major cities. And a lot of these same folks are going, yeah, but it's okay because these folks are really problematic. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's interesting because like I, I see the role as government is to promote and protect life. And, uh, along with, I mean, in life goes along with the liberties that, that we're guaranteed from our constitution. Hmm. But then... I just don't, to me, when I look at a situation like that, I have a hard time understanding how we promoting or protecting life by putting our own military on its own citizens. Surely, surely there has to be another way that we can resolve this. Yeah, I I think historically, or rather, I think history is going to show that this wasn't the best way to address these concerns. Um, but in the moment, it's almost as if there's nothing else that the government can think of. And so they're like, let's just see what happens. We try this. Uh, but the images and visuals are certainly troubling. And uh, it, it, it is true that you do have folks uh, who are probably co-opting the, these, these legitimate and, and good protests for injustice and co-opting them for destruction, violence. I mean, you saw that in other protests around the country where people were just vandalizing things for the sake of, for the sake of vandalizing. And um, so I'm sure that's going on in Portland too. And it's just frustrating that we're at this point that this is, this is the response. It is frustrating to see that from, from our government. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just some of that, some of that stuff just gets, I've, I've been, Dave and I, we've been talking about certain of these issues for about what, Dave, like the last two months now? Yeah. And like we've kind of, you can, if you people listen to this, they've kind of heard us process through everything. Yeah. But now I'm to a point where I'm just like almost embarrassed about how we're handling situations right now in, in this country. Um, like whether it be like the pandemic, uh, like going through a second surge, uh, whether it be through like the protesting and stuff, like our nation is on display, and I feel like in a lot of ways we're we're failing the test. Is that is that a right? Am I am I thinking of this the right way, or do you think differently? Yeah, I think uh, I think that's a reasonable way to look at things. Uh, part of it is unprecedented when you have this pandemic going on. This isn't something we've experienced in a hundred years. Uh, you couple that with the economic fallout uh, that's accompanying the pandemic. You, you factor in these these protests, which are you know motivated by uh, legitimate sources of outrage. Uh, seems like we we've had this outrage for a long time, but 
uh, with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, like all these things are kind of coming to the forefront and it, it, it's percolating and it's boiling. And then you factor in the fact that it's a presidential election year, right? Yeah. I mean, there's just so much going on right now and it's all culminating this summer. Uh, and, and it's just magnified in many ways. Any one of those things would be difficult for government to deal with. Now you're asking people to do it at the same time in the midst of a presidential election year. And it does seem as if uh, we're just paralyzed, right? There's, yeah. there's not much, it, it seems like there's just not much we can do in the moment. It's like, we're just trying to get to election day and that problem ideally will be solved by election day. At least we'll know who wins, you know? So that part of the, that we, we part, hope we don't want well, to no, I mean, I mean, like, even now like, there's a lot of, division and there still will be division but right now we have this bitter presidential campaign by november hopefully yeah hopefully we'll have a winner <laughs> yeah you don't want to push and gore situation. i know i know and and uh you know you factor in the problems that could arise with mail-in balloting with delayed results getting through and it, it's possible we won't know until middle of november which would be a very 2020 thing to happen oh, oh so trash. yeah okay sure let's just delay this even more <laughs> Hopefully, once we have a result, uh, you know, that's that's one out of four things we can put behind us and uh, we can we can move on to the other the other things. Although, again, that's that might be asking too much. Yeah, I think it's a really, uh, you know, interesting and polarizing time too. you have these you have people that are so rightfully so, like you said, like there's a right you know, reason behind a lot of the protesting and a lot of the things that like, I even think that things that, you know, maybe I disagree with, like some of the people that were protesting, you know, the government's response to COVID, right? Like, I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with why they were protesting, but rightfully so they feel threatened by their, you know, livelihood going away, things like that. So, but you have these people that have been isolated for two months, mm -hmm. right? Three months. And there's like so much pent up, like, frustration and sadness and fear and it's like like we're coming in hot yeah. to November right like Devon uh, texted me earlier said it was 100 days till the election like you know Daniel like where do you feel like um, I, I mean I know you've kind of spoke to it already but like where do you feel like we are with 100 days out like in terms of just the election I guess so I heard, a, I heard something this morning that, that really surprised me. So we're 100 days out from the election. It was 108 days ago that Bernie Sanders conceded the Democratic nomination. That seemed like forever ago. Yeah. I was going to say, that feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, so so we're, we're closer to the election than that, which is just mind-boggling to me. That's just wild. Um, so we're at a point now where, and this isn't just this year. I mean, for the last you know, several election cycles, People have been more polarized politically. There's fewer people in the so-called middle, at least, willing to consider, you know, both candidates in, in good faith and, and, and make a decision at the last minute. Um, so in that sense, this isn't particularly new. But I think this idea of coming in hot to November is a really interesting way to, to put it. Uh, we, we've been... You know, last four years have been so chaotic with with President Trump in office. He's the most unorthodox president we've ever had in many ways, at least in the way that he communicates and the way that he speaks in terms of his policies and in terms of his uh, you know, accomplishments. 
it's been pretty orthodox, like conservative Republican for the most part. Some of his policies and immigration certainly are out of the mainstream, you know, even among Republican presidents. Um, but you've had four years of people just looking forward to 2020, right? Uh, on January 20th, 2017, his inauguration day, people were already saying, okay, only four more years until we get a, you know, get, get a do-over. And, and now that time is coming up. And uh, you have all these tensions, like you said, with, with COVID and the racial unrest, uh, the economic downturn. Uh, I think coming in hot is the, is the great way to put it here. Uh, and the other thing to mention here, even with, with COVID, everything has become politicized. Everything has become a partisan issue in some respect. So do you, I mean, do you think that that started with this presidency or with Obama's presidency? No, I think, I mean, arguably it goes back. I, I think it, well, I tend to blame social media for a lot of things. And so I think at least people's uh, recognition of certain things as political uh, goes, goes, you know, back with the, you know, I guess the increase and rise of social media where everyone's using it. I don't even think it necessarily began with Obama, though. I mean, our, you know, people were, you know, saying Bill Clinton was the worst president in American history. Then it was George W. Bush. And then it was Barack Obama. And then it was Donald Trump. And it'll be Joe Biden after that or whoever ends up becoming our, our next president. Um, Did you just make a prediction? Oh, no. I mean, like if it's Joe Biden and you know, uh, Kanye in 2024, once he gets his act together, um, you know, who knows? Uh, but, yeah, I, I think the the fact that everything is seen through this partisan lens and this this lens of of, of politics is is problematic, particularly for Christians, particularly for people of faith. It's, it's really it's a lot easier to just fall in line behind a political party. Um and uh, I think we have the opportunity as Christians to to lead the way uh, in a different way. I don't know if that's going to be successful, but I think we certainly have the opportunity. Yeah. So how sh- how do you think Christians should be thinking about like different issues going into the election in November? So first of all, I do think it's it's possible uh, that that Christians uh, can support Republicans and Democrats. Um, I, I don't. You just said something super controversial. I know. Yeah, I like. <laughs> no, I think it's legitimate that uh, you have Christians who are like, you know what? I don't think I can vote for for Democrats because of abortion. That's just that's just too important of an issue for me. And I think there's Christians who can say, you know, I can't vote for Republicans because of their views on social welfare or immigration or what, whatever the issue might be. Um, and I think that's legitimate as well. Um, if you're a Christian and you're, you find it difficult to find something wrong with your political party, I think that's a problem. Because our, our, faith, our faith doesn't, <laughs> it can't be compartmentalized into a party platform, right? There's not one Christian party. Uh, so it takes more effort for our part to say, how are we going to engage in a way that, that uh, not only uh, honors our witness, but also uh, respects those around us and, and seeks justice for the least of these. Um, this isn't a matter of choosing the lesser of two evils either. I don't think, uh, I think any Christian is going to find disappointment in politics, but we still have the obligation to be involved, to be engaged, and to wrestle with, with what that means for us. See, that's great because, okay, so as a Christian, do you think it's a, do you think it's reasonable to just distance yourself from politics and just not get engaged? Or do you think that's irresponsible as a Christian, of a Christian? 
I think it's a cop out, and I think it's I think it's a way of saying uh, I, I think it's defeat I think it's defeatist potentially. I, I, I think it depends on the motivation too, right? Because if you're a Christian, and you say, "Well, Jesus is coming back, and I don't really care. The world's going to burn." I mean, that's just that's not biblical, right? We're called to go and you know forth into the nations, um, and, and th that could obviously be in the realm of politics too. Uh, Michael Ware has some great writing on this in his book, Reclaiming Hope, where he basically says that politics is a central venue for loving our neighbor. Right. I mean, our particular society is a political society. Um, that doesn't mean running for office. That doesn't mean going to vote. It means every day you're engaged in some type of political action just by virtue of being with others in a community. And so you can't really distance yourself from politics in, in a way that, that that's faithful, I don't think. Um, hey, Dan, but, you came prepared today, huh? Well, <laughs> you know, it, it's just a lot of thinking about this stuff, trying to trying to wrestle through it with students here who may be feeling engaged to, or feeling called to engage the world in different ways. Um, but I want to make perfectly, I want to make it very clear that, you know, some Christians are going to have different visions of what that means for them. Some Christians might see that calling as saying, I need to go into a, a pro-life ministry and, and uh, seek justice for the unborn, whereas someone else says, I need to go into uh, uh, an organization that uh, takes care of refugees and, and, uh, and brings in immigrants to the United States and helps settle them and that kind of thing. So I think it's important that Christians not get a party lens on what it means to be a Christian in politics. I think as soon as that happens, it's much easier for your faith to be co-opted and potentially be dis uh, manipulated by the political actors in our society. Gosh, I feel like I could tweet everything you just said. <laughs> I, I thought the same thing. <laughs> and, and I was just thinking back because, Daniel, I remember reading what you wrote in September last year. Uh, and I actually pulled it up. Uh, the article is How Christians Can P Prepare for the 2020 Election. If you haven't seen it, it's on the Gospel Co Coalition. A uh, little plug for you. Um, but you have this quote that I, I really love and appreciate. And I think that it's, it's very helpful. But you say, no matter how many times you hear commentators declare 2020 the most important election of our lifetime, don't buy into the perspective that the stakes of any one election are greater than the stakes of a compromised witness that besmirches the name of Jesus. Bro, hold on. First of all, that was just one quote. Second of all, like, you literally could quote this whole article. Like, it's so good. Like, I encourage, I will share it on my Facebook page. Like, please go look at it again. I'll probably share it, like, five more times for the election. Um, but I just think that's so important for us to realize, like, it, it, it brings balance to what you said too, Dan. Like, like yes, it's important for us to be engaged and not cop out, but we also can't put so much weight and stock in it that we forget where our eternity lies, right? As believers. Yeah, I, th I think that's I think it's exactly right. Uh, we do have, especially when we tend to treat politics as more of a hobby or a sport, we tend to look at it as in terms of wins and losses and. Uh, that becomes really problematic uh, when we think about the stakes of politics. Um, it doesn't, it shouldn't dominate the lives of Christians. Uh, and I'm saying this as a political scientist, as someone who thinks politics is essential for our engagement with the world. Um, but, I, you know, I was talking about this, this, I don't remember if it was the article or, or maybe just the general discussion with the class last year. And I was encouraging students, you know, don't be, don't despair, right? A, a lost election or a lost Supreme Court seat, the way that you view it, like 
don't despair in that, right? We have hope beyond this. But then a student, I think rightfully so, uh, added to that and in some sense corrected what I was saying, but saying, but you can still be sad. You can still, you can still uh, lament with those who are hurting. And that's exactly right. Like, you know, we shouldn't just brush off the outcome of an election uh, that we were hoping for in, in faith and say, oh, it's okay, God, Jesus has me, which he does. But if we're despairing, we don't, we aren't recognizing that hope, right? We can, we can be upset and frustrated with the results of an election and still have hope in Christ moving forward. And I think that's the balance we need to strike. Right. Yeah. And you, you brought up wins and losses and we're talking about election. A lot of people um, are starting, they make decisions based off of Supreme Court justices because we have an older Supreme Court justice. Uh, we have older Supreme Court justices right now. Um, so what would you say to someone who is, who is afraid that they're, that what, however they cast their vote is, it could be, it could mean a loss of religious liberty or religious freedom for them. Yeah. I mean, I know that, uh, I, I mean, there are several people that I know, uh, just in my personal life who, and I'll just give an example here, who find Donald Trump to be repugnant and, uh, just don't think he's a, a good person, <laughs> to not only to be president, but just a good human being. I guess as a Presbyterian, we should say we're not we're not good people anyway. Um, but uh, they say we're going to vote. I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court, because of religious freedom. And honestly, it's hard to find fault with that too much. I mean, I, I think I think what I would say is, if you're voting for a candidate be willing to recognize that the candidate is going to have flaws, is going to not be perfect, and be willing to speak out against that candidate when they, when they do something problematic. Um, and so the frustrating thing that I have with a lot of, uh, and, and I'm not you know, casting a wide net here, but you know, so a handful of Christian leaders who not only voted for Donald Trump, but are basically going to the mat to defend him, you can you can vote and, and, and be happy with the results of Donald Trump's judicial appointments. Like personally, man, like as a professor at a Christian university, his judicial appointments have been really good for my university. Like yeah. it, just looking at it like they're, they've been good for John Brown University. They're good for Christian higher education. But that doesn't mean there needs to be a subservience then to ignore every other thing that he does that that rubs me the wrong way personally or that I think is problematic for the Christian witness. So I, I think it's really difficult. I think it's tough for a lot of people and myself included a lot of times to find that nuance to say, well, I can approve of this, but I, I, that doesn't obligate me to approve of everything else. So long as we're not voting based on fear that we're not voting based on a desire to see your opponents lose. If we're prayerfully and, and, and seriously considering how we spend our vote, I think Christians can come away voting for either candidate and be justified doing so. And the thing about like, so I, I follow uh, Luke Goodrich. He wrote the, his, his book, uh, Free to Believe. Um, and he, he's, he's in, with the Beckett Foundation. And he, they represent uh, religious liberty cases. Uh, in the Supreme Court, and I, I think I thought I saw on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, but religious liberty has been pretty been pretty safe in this country for the last couple of cases that have gone up to the Supreme Court. Is that right? Yeah, no, it's absolutely right. I think uh, I, I know what you're talking about, and I believe going back to 
goodness, late 2000s, uh, there, there's like 12 or 15 cases that have been favorable for religious freedom, uh, at, at least, at least that specifically like conservative traditional Christians would be really happy with the outcomes of those cases. Um, and a lot of those cases have been either unanimous, uh, seven to two, six to three, a handful of five, four decisions yeah. on the Supreme Court. So things have been good for religious freedom. And that's another thing to, to mention. I think it's reasonable to be concerned, like we don't want to ever lose the freedom that we have as Christians. And, and certainly we would want to make sure that religious minorities in our country can practice and worship openly. That's kind of what it means to be an American, right? I mean, that's just yeah. the promise of our country, freedom, freedom to worship. Um, but we, we shouldn't get so focused that we ignore the fact that we're doing pretty good in that respect right now. Um, and so to cast every election as the future of religious freedom is at stake, I don't know if I entirely buy into that, right? I mean, because that's what I see. I see a lot of yeah. people that, that, I mean, let's just be honest right now. There is, uh, the, the, there's a, there's a huge wave of secularism and there's a huge fear that, uh, LGBTQ plus populations are going to take over religious freedom, that we're going to lose our religious freedom for favorability towards this, these, this community, yeah. which causes a huge divide, which, I mean, I see people, who, you know, they, they choose not to love their neighbor because mm -hmm. of these things. And are they, are they'll choose, uh, I mean, they'll, they'll just act in fear of losing all this freedom. So when the Supreme Court decided uh, Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, earlier this year, this was the case that essentially wrote sexual orientation and gender identity into Title VII of anti-discrimination law. Um, and that was, that was seen to be a big win for the LGBTQ community, um, but also really concerning uh, for a lot of Christians and religious conservatives who thought that, well, geez, what about our hiring practices at churches or Christian colleges or nonprofit organizations? Like, What's that going to do there? And, and I was kind of concerned about it from the uh, being a constitutionalist, it, like that. That's where it, it was the textualist versus constitutionalist argument that kind of yeah, kind of yeah. And, and Justice Gorsuch wrote from a textualist perspective, and and other conservative justices uh, criticized his textualism and said that's 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 not the right way to do textualism. So there's some interesting disagreements among conservatives there. But after the decision, uh, I remember. Uh, I, I, I got asked to write a piece for Christianity Today about this and was basically saying, look, the language in this decision from Justice Gorsuch basically said this says nothing about the future of religious freedom when it comes to conflicting with gender identity and sexual orientation. Like we're not there yet. Um, and the language that he used in that Bostock decision was really encouraging for religious freedom, basically saying, look, we need to treat the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as kind of a super statute is what he said. And any conflict that comes, you're going to have to have a serious conversation in the courts about whether that conflict goes one way or the other. But we got we got clarification on just this term. I mean, there was a case in, in Southern California, the Our Lady case, Our Lady of Guadalupe mm -hmm. school case, where the court said, yeah, these religious schools, if they think they're teachers or ministers, if that's how they describe them, then we're not going to tell them that they have to retain or not fire those those teachers. We're going to give the so-called ministerial exception, a wide berth. And that decision was seven to two. Two liberal justices voted with the uh, conservative justices on that. Wow. So you're already seeing maybe, you're already seeing the potential for a compromise between LGBT rights and religious freedom 
in this country through the courts. They've been trying to do it through the law for for years and years now, but we just haven't had the political will to do it. But you almost see the, the, the foundation being laid to say, okay, how can we guarantee rights for LGBT Americans while making sure that we protect real religious freedom? And, and I think we've, we saw, we maybe got a preview of that this last Supreme Court term. Yeah, so we don't have to fear the Obergefell decision, even though we don't like it. It's just, we don't have to fear it. It's, you know, we, 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 we see a way forward maybe where we can have rights for LGBT Americans uh, and, and rightfully so, <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also rights for sincere religious believers who have, you know, statements of faith and, and mission statements that have definitions of, of relationships and, and gender that are grounded in, in scripture in, in, in that kind of way. Mm. And that's been my big thing. I, I, I don't think that, like, you should, you should never fire someone or evict someone from their home based on what what they believe or you know right. or how they what kind of lifestyle that they're living if it's not illegal um but if but i think going forward i mean like you said we're, we're finding a way that we can go we can find a way to go forward in this country and i, I guess that's that's pretty hopeful I, I'm, I'm optimistic and, and there's plenty of uh, there's plenty of folks who who are not they, they say oh no the bostock case was a lot worse than than you can even imagine and i i think that's I think that's a little misguided and a little uh, too pessimistic, um, but I guess history will, <laughs> it'll decide one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. So Daniel, you, you've, uh, you, you've obviously thought about a lot of this stuff. I mean, you have to, it's your job. So <laughs> that's uh, true. Um, but like going into, into 20, for, into this election, you feel, you say you feel, pretty optimistic about the way things are heading or do you think it's about to just be because i mean because i mean i'll just be honest with you and dave you can you can chime in on this too but i'm i'm kind of like i'm a little concerned not with the results but how the people are going to react no matter the result agreed Oh, yeah, I'm optimistic when it comes to religious freedom and LGBT rights, getting that right. I am not optimistic about this election. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think it's going to be really, really messy. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of couple of scenarios, right, where, you know, maybe maybe President Trump uh, wins the Electoral College again, uh, but loses the popular vote, which I can't envision a scenario where President Trump wins the popular vote, just uh, given the fact that there's so much disapproval of him in, in large cities. Yeah, but that would be two elections in a row where uh, the Democratic candidate lost the popular vote or won the popular vote, but lost the electoral college. And actually, it would have been what would that be uh, three out of the last five presidential elections, okay. where the pres where the Democratic nominee lost the electoral college but won the popular vote. I guess it would have been three out of the last six. Excuse me, 2000, 20, 2016 and twenty twenty. That concerns me in terms of the long-term uh, stability of of our system. Like if we're having presidents being chosen consistently by a minority of the voters in the country, then that's problematic. For most of our history, the electoral college did align with the popular vote. Like it was it was really unusual to have that happen. Yeah. But now, if we have three out of the last six elections decided that way, that that's definitely concerning. But you could also see a selection where Joe Biden wins the popular vote and wins pretty handily in the Electoral College. 
Uh, but then Donald Trump casting doubts on the legitimacy of the election. He's already kind of teased this, right? Saying all yeah. mail-in ballots, it's going to rig the election. Um, even when he won the election, right? In 2016, he talked about how there were millions of illegal votes cast in California. Otherwise, he would have won the popular vote too. I mean, you win the election and you still complain. Uh, it's wild. I think like from living in Kentucky and Dave in Indiana, I, I, like for me, when I hear the Electoral College, um, I'm actually in favor of it because mm-hmm. I think it protects smaller states like us over like if you just make it a popular vote, then basically you just have to win California and New York and it's over. And it's over. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the solution, by the way, is to get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, being in Arkansas, I think it's it's good because we don't get presidential candidates coming to us anyway. Uh, so it's nice to actually count for something. Um but uh, I do I do wonder where we go from here if, you know, three out of the last six elections have been decided with a split in the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. I don't know what the solution is, but I don't think that's going to be something that we quickly are able to recover from again, particularly with a president that's so divisive as Donald Trump. Right. I mean, I don't think all of a sudden Democrats are going to say, oh, well, that was tough, but <laughs> go on to back to 2024 now. Um, they're going to be they're going to be pretty fired up and, and hot after if that happens again. Um, you think that's likely? I, I think it's more likely that. Well, I mean, I, I don't I, I still think it's probably m- the most likely scenario is that Joe Biden wins the Electoral College at this point, just given the, the polling that we're seeing. Um, but I don't I think feel it's, like we're living in 2016 all over again. I know. I, I, feel, I, don't I like thought the predict. same thing. I know it scares me to make predictions, um, but it wouldn't be crazy to see Donald Trump win the Electoral College, uh, you know, win a few of these really close states by, you know, 100,000 total votes and then lose the popular vote by five or six million. Uh, it would basically be a repeat of 2016. That's not totally crazy. Has there been a more divisive president that you can think of? Um, divisive is probably a relative term because I'm sure there are plenty of conservatives and Republicans who thought President Obama was divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think empirically and in just the way that there's just in terms of rhetoric and the way that a show of good faith, I don't think that I don't think President Trump really does much to attempt to unite the country. You can make an argument that the President Obama at least in his rhetoric, tried to speak to all Americans. Um, but when President Trump is calling Democrats, you know, and, and uh, you know, maybe kind of like the enemy of the people or saying he's radical left-wing, whatever. I mean, President, President Obama didn't talk about radical right-wing conservative Republicans. He didn't speak like that. He had the Tea Party to deal with. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and it would have been easy for President Obama to, you know, cast them off and, and almost inflame the situation. Oh, these nut jobs with their guns and they're taken <laughs> to the streets. They're crazy. They're rednecks. And he did say some things that were insensitive at times. But my goodness, it's like it's like a little molehill hill compared to a mountain for Donald Trump. Right. He says something every single day that a past president would never say. Yeah. I try to stay off of Twitter. No, yeah, no. it's good. It's good for your good for your soul. <laughs> So um, what's the biggest for you, like, what's the biggest political issues that you, th- that you think that Christians should be thinking of going into this election? Oh, my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a loaded question. I know. It <laughs> is. It is. I had to throw the only one in there. Um, so I'll, I'll give a couple. 
I'll give a couple that Christians might, you know, may want to consider. You know, if you're a conservative Christian, you're going to want to be really cognizant of, of judges because you said, Devon, earlier that uh, the culture and, and American society is certainly becoming more secular. Um, I think the potential backlash to uh, conservative Christianity, especially white Christianity in this country after President Trump is going to be pretty severe. Um, given the way that they saw a lot of white evangelicals just kind of line up behind President Trump and, and not, cr not criticize his, his uh, negative actions. And so I think judges are one thing that conservatives will look to and say, well, if we're going to get beaten up in the culture, at least we'll have protection in the courts for a little while. Um, if, you're, if you're not a, a conservative uh, voter, you know, I think that's something that people got, you got to pay attention to is immigration. Uh, this, you know, President Trump has, has outdone himself in many respects on the issue of immigration uh, and outdone past Republican presidents too, taking stances that not only curb uh, legal immigration, which is, you know, we're trying to keep fewer and fewer immigrants coming into the country legally now, um, but also the issue of refugee resettlement. That's just wild to me. The number of refugees that we're letting into our country has just dropped incredibly. Uh, from the last several years, including Christians. So we have Christians who are seeking asylum in, in countries or from countries where there, there are real threats to their livelihood. Um, but the United States is not necessarily a friendly landing spot for these refugees anymore. And so I think that's a potentially really big issue. You know, how can, how can we as Christians uh, recognize that we should have borders and we should have security on our, on our borders, but also how do we be a welcoming country, particularly for the least of these in our world who are struggling, who are maybe our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And we're just not doing that right now. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another issue that Christians may want to pay attention to. That's really interesting too, uh, Dan. I, I have a question that's kind of related. So you talk about the issues, you talk about, you know, kind of our, our mindset and thought processes, like what, what are some resources that you would recommend to people that maybe um, are those, I mean, honestly, I would kind of describe myself in this way, but maybe are those of us that are, um, that traditionally maybe haven't been so involved and engaged in political conversation and haven't been so involved and engaged in voting in election time. Mm -hmm. Like what are some resources that you would recommend to people that are maybe like, okay, like I, I definitely need to start paying attention. Like, where do I start? So the Center for Public Justice has some resources, um, and I, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but it's a workshop that you can engage in. It's an 11-week workshop. If you search, for, if you go on the Center for Public Justice's website, um, there are some resources there for people. You could do it as a Bible study. You could do it uh, through your church. You could do it through your community. Um, Center for Public Justice, good stuff there. The Ann campaign, we've talked about them. Uh, I can't remember if we did this before or after the recording, but uh, Ann campaign uh, with Justin Gibney and Michael Ware, they do a lot of good work in trying to get Christians connected to their local communities. And that's the, one, that's the big difference with the Ann campaign is trying to pay less attention to the national level, right? We should pay attention to the president, but we got to pay attention to politics at our local level too. Like what's happening Absolutely. in our communities. Um, so the Ann campaign has some good stuff there. Um, I think, uh, John Anazu is a law professor at Washington university. He has a great book out with Tim Keller. Um, it's, uh, it's a book on pluralism and living with each other, uh, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a time of deep difference with one another. So how do we do that faithfully and honorably? 
Um, I think that's a good, I think it's a good place to get started. Uh, and I'm trying to think if I'm, if I'm missing something here. No, those are good. I think, I think those are some good sources and campaign, uh, Center for Public Justice and John Inazu is a really good person to, to pay attention to. I listened to John Inazu speak a couple, a couple months ago. I got his book, Confident Pluralism. And it- oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good book too. That, that's pretty, that's written kind of, you know, he's a law professor. And so it's yeah. very, it's written kind of like that. He's talking about the law, et cetera. But this book that he has out with Tim Keller, um, I'm going to find the title as I'm talking about it here. Uh, he brings in essays from people who are coming, you know, from different, uh, different walks of life and uh, talking about how they answer or live with each other uh, despite differences. The book title is Uncommon Ground, by the way. Mm-hmm. Living faithfully in a world of difference. That's awesome. You, you so help. off topic a little bit. Uh, you are also in the process of writing a book too, right? Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, <laughs> it kind of got shelved with everything going on with COVID at my university. We we had to take on an all hands on deck approach to to teaching. Uh, not only remote teaching in the semester, but we've been doing online teaching all summer, trying to get, keep students engaged and connected, you know, keeping them uh, not only connected with us, but connected with each other, particularly when their jobs may have fallen through or internships fell through. So, but yeah, the book that I'm working on or this idea that I'm working on, it's uneasy citizenship, this idea that Christians, uh, we should hold our citizenship here on earth in a, some, in a somewhat loose grip knowing that we do have our citizenship ultimately in heaven, but it's not one that we should totally dis- you know, disregard. Obviously, if you've been listening to anything we've been talking about over the last uh, 45 minutes or so, um, Christians ought to be engaged. And so one of the things I want to do with this project is bring in uh, research from political science, talking about problems that we're facing in our society, whether it's polarization, whether it's, uh, whether it's uh, demographics, uh, challenges for the church moving forward, um, but then talk about ways we can try to bridge these gaps. How do we live faithfully in a world of, of disagreement, knowing that these challenges are out there? And so that's the goal, at least. It did have to take a little bit of a backseat to some other stuff that I'm working on with teaching and other more immediate research projects, but that's the, that's the goal. Hopefully, we'll see the light of day someday. Well, I can't wait to check that one out, man. Me too. <laughs> 2020 is wild man we can't it's ruined everybody's plans i had i had plans to write it to do a lot of writing this summer and uh you know kids are home and uh we got uh we got a lot going on with with teaching and getting ready for the fall but you do have a blog i do i have a, yeah, the uneasy citizenship blog uh i rage origin or you you know occasionally we'll we'll write an essay on there it's usually used to highlight some some readings that I think are kind of cool uh, called the overview like articles that I've read in the past week or so that are that kind of speak to these challenges they could be political science research it could be stuff on religion and politics it might be something just about American politics or culture that I think is interesting so you you can subscribe to that uh, at uneasy citizenship um, and, and check that out but that's something I do to keep from going insane while I'm teaching. So I mean, can you can you watch the news without going crazy as a political well, scientist? Yeah, I mean, I don't watch a lot of news actually. I mean, I get a lot of my news from social media, so I can kind of curate what I get. 
Um, I try to follow different reporters that I that I appreciate, uh, but cable news just drives me crazy. Like Facts. it's it's just uh, it, it's so sensationalized, and it, it it does get at this idea that politics is a sport where you're just trying to win and avoid losing. And man, I don't think that's healthy. Well, that's kind of that's kind of where we're at right now in this country. If you if you vote for these people, then you're a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no nuance. There's not a lot of new room for nuance on cable news. Um, so I find it easiest to just curate the news that I get through Twitter. Uh, doesn't mean engaging in the comments. Goodness, don't do that. Um, but you can you can keep up with what's what's going on in the world without uh, without becoming you know heavily invested in the news. I think there's ways you can do that uh, faithfully and and helpfully. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Like, I think we have a tendency to, one, like, completely pull ourselves out and not pay attention at all. And the other problem that we run into on the opposite end of the spectrum is, like, we get all of our news from the same source. Yeah. Or we, or we stay in one particular lane when, like, all the other lanes can really have good impact when you kind of, like you said, curate and you see, okay, well, like, here's, here's all the angles I'm getting. And like, let me take the top two or three that I trust mm. and kind of create my own opinion about what that news is per se. So I, th- I think it's a good strategy. So a couple of things. First of all, uh, I think we should be be uh, cognizant of of who we follow on social media. I think I think some of the people we follow ought to make us somewhat uncomfortable. Right. Not 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 in a way that you know just enrages you because you know that's just not good for your mental health. But just a challenge in a helpful way so that you're not always just getting you're not always hanging out in the echo chamber. And that's something that's hard for me sometimes. Like it's really easy to get smug and say, oh, I've got this figured out. Like I, I follow the right people on Twitter. I I don't I don't need to follow these people to get what's going on in the world. But it's helpful to follow people that you disagree with and to push back lovingly and, and to really be open to that correction yourself. Um, but I also think and this is something you said a second ago, Dave, that it is easy to try to, to, to get disengaged from, from politics and, and society and to say, no, nah, I don't want to mess with that. It's too much for me or I don't need to get involved with that. I've been really challenged to think about that. That's a really privileged position to take, right? To say, sure. oh, I can step away from politics because it doesn't affect me. I mean, I think we're seeing with a lot of these protests, I mean, politics and, and governance, it matters to a lot of people. I mean, I haven't ever, I haven't ever been pulled over, I don't think, on the account of my race. Um, but we need to have these conversations about policing and uh, law enforcement. Uh, and I should be in- engaged in that, even if it doesn't affect me personally. Sure. So I, I, I would, I, I try to balance my desire to be aloof without being completely, uh, disengaged from the concerns of my, of my brothers and sisters. Like that's dangerous, I think. Well, that's, that's kind of like, you, you brought up a good point there too, is, like to be disengaged, like some that's a privilege to be disengaged. As, yeah. Like as a as a black American, I feel like everything I do is political. Mm-hmm. So if I, I mean, like a, a normal police stop shouldn't be political, but it is political. If I, you know, whatever it is, I'm making a political statement. I have to be very cognizant of, of my actions in in public. Um, and so I mean it, and it kind of speaks to like where we're at now um, where I feel like, you know, 
black Americans were 13% of the population in this country. Um, but we're like, so much of this, of these movements are trying to say like, Hey, we matter. And we need to, we, we want the validation of being, of knowing that we're cared for, but there's so many people who either nonchalantly think about politics and mm. vote with, whichever way without caring for the brothers or sisters in Christ that may look mm. different. Than them. Well, you mentioned, uh, I, I think it's also the height of privilege uh, to, to say, well, my, to, to think that your actions don't have political consequences. Yes. Like the way that I like, so a good example of this. Um, I love the baseball's back. I can't tell you how much I missed live sports and I'm, I'm a huge baseball guy. And so it was great. I took a nap yesterday afternoon during the Cubs Brewers game, like with the fake sound in the background, it was just, it was wonderful. <laughs> but uh, you, know, you pay attention to these games, at least early on uh, opening day, you know, you had players knee- kneeling dur- or before the national anthem, some, you know, Mookie Betts took a knee during the national anthem with the Dodgers. Yeah. You know, he had his, his two teammates by his side. Uh, they were standing, but they had his hand, their hands on his shoulder. It was just a really good moment. Then, of course, on social media the next day, a family member says, oh, you know, there's too much politics and sports. I wish they could just keep it separate, right? Um, my response to that is, like, when has politics not been in sports? That's it, right? I mean, if you if the whole per, the whole idea of singing the national anthem before a sporting event, there's politics in that. Or, you know, the flyovers, the military involvement. Like, of course there's politics in sports. Um, but it's politics that kind of makes you uncomfortable now, which is why you're recognizing it. And yeah, so I, I, I think we have to be really careful to say frustrating. Like, when, when is it okay? Unless it's mine. Yeah. When is it okay to when is it okay to do something like that? Like I, I get like the argument of people say, well, when you're on a job, you can't really make a political statement. I said yes and no. Like if someone, if I had the opportunity, if I had a platform to do it, hmm. you, you probably you probably should say it. You probably should do do something. If you see something that's wrong, you should probably say something about it. So when LeBron James comes up and he talks about um, how people need to hold the Attorney General of Kentucky, uh, they need to hold him accountable for for arresting these officers. Yeah, you. Should, I mean, that's. I mean, I may not agree with it, but at least he's he's speaking on it. Like he, he this is right. He's the platform to do it. When is like when is it okay for LeBron James to speak out, or when is it okay for Mookie Betts to speak out, or the WNBA players to say something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I do think there there is a paternalistic attitude there to say, well, no, you can protest, but but only in a venue that makes me comfortable. <laughs> oh yeah, but people don't like it when you're protesting though in the street though. So I mean. Sure. I, Good, what you good, luck, do? <laughs> good luck finding a space to protest. Right. You can protest over there where I don't have to watch it. But in the same exactly. way, I feel like unless people start protesting like the way they've been protesting, and, and I get it, like I've said it on the podcast before, I don't like the rioting and whatnot, but mm-hmm. they haven't gotten people's attention until they started doing that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it wasn't, I've, you know how many emails I've gotten from companies saying that they believe that black lives are important in, in like, in, in, I've got so many emails. My inbox is flooded with with stuff. I mean, I don't care if Target feels that way. That's fine. That's that's it's great that you that you feel that way. I just I just a shot for a couple minutes. But like, it's, but so many people like it. It shouldn't take catastrophic events for us to realize, hey, this may be an issue. This may be a problem. But like, I don't even think like going back to like MLK. I don't think that. 
if he said the same things he said in the sixties today, a lot of people would still have the same reactions that they're having right now to, to a lot of these movements. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're seeing the reaction to the protests and the sports uh, kind of colliding here, right? Cause well, you know, this, these protests aren't the right way to do that. You have to be more uh, strategic about how you protest. But then when Mookie Betts takes a knee during the national anthem and a completely passive protest, it's unacceptable. So, like you said, Dave, where's the venue? I mean, people protested at the Olympics, the biggest mm-hmm. stage in the world, and people and people have done this before. That's right. But I mean, I, I think what's so shocking is that, uh, like sports like NASCAR and the and another league like the MLB, when, you, when people start protesting there because of the the uh, nature of the people who watch those sports or the, the right. demographic of them, then it becomes, a, it becomes an issue. That's I, really, yeah. I really wasn't surprised that the NBA has, has done something. Now the next one, I'll be surprised that if the, if the NFL does, if the, if the, if the NFL paints something like black lives matter on the field, then yeah, I'll be, I'll be pretty, I'll be pretty surprised. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean that, I mean, but I think, yeah, just, it's just the demographics of, of the of the viewers who who don't who don't like it and they don't want to watch it and that's fine. You're just yeah. missing out on you. I mean, you're missing out on sports and I'm sure there's a lot of Netflix titles that you can watch for the next sure, couple of weeks. Sure. And I, yeah, you know, I guess that's your prerogative. But and and this is me personally. I mean, I don't know. I I would rather I would rather watch sports and be kind of annoyed. Not that I am now, but annoyed with someone. Like I, I didn't really. I don't care a lot. I don't care for it when you know, NFL players, when they get to the end zone, take a knee, cross themselves, point to the sky. It just, it just seems a little, I wouldn't do that. Like, I just wouldn't do that personally. But you rather, you rather them get a cell phone out or get the phone or Yeah, out? I know. Exactly. <laughs> or Chad Johnson or, or Terrell Davis, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm not going to stop watching, right? Because it's, it's fun and it's entertaining. I, I just hate that we, that we have to – say, well, no, if it doesn't line up perfectly with what I want or believe, then I'm not going to engage it. I think that's, I think that's problematic. Well, dude, like I don't watch NASCAR because I don't like watching people drive around in circles for yeah, four hours. That's fine. Yeah. Like, if, <laughs> like, like, I'll be honest with you. I don't really care about any of their political views. It's just like, like, I don't watch it for that reason. So if you don't like football, then like, don't watch football. That's right. But like, it's just like. Yeah, Bubba Watson wasn't wasn't that I knew six And they're saying, well, I guess I'm not going to watch it now because of X, Y, and Z. I mean, why do that to yourself? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had no idea who Bubba Watson was last year at this time. I just. Bubba, uh, is his name Watson? Bubba? That's a golfer. Wallace. Wallace. Oh, yeah. Watson's a golfer. <laughs> Oh, Watson. Well, I didn't know who both of them were before. <laughs> Clearly, uh, our fans. So going into, like, we're, t- we're talking about the protests, the things that have gone on, and the, the a lot of the protests that you see right now in, in these major cities have been um, mostly uh, for black lives. And, and you, with the, I mean, you see a lot of that happening now, and they want police reform and whatnot. But at the same time, with the pandemic, you see that there are churches who uh, that governors are putting uh, kind of restriction on churches. Um, it, like, do you do you see that as a violation of religious freedom? So, not unless churches are being treated differently than other organizations in the state. So, there was a recent. Uh, 
there was a recent decision at the Supreme Court, and it wasn't a ruling. It was more just kind of let the decision for the state of Nevada go into effect. Basically, Nevada kept restrictions on churches uh, from keeping, I think, more they, they, they barred more than 50 people meeting indoors for indoor church services. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, allowed uh, casinos to open with social distancing at 50 percent capacity. Um, you, I mean, if you've been to Vegas before, and I haven't been in years, but I mean, these casinos are large, large things. So even at 50% capacity, you're talking, you know, a couple thousand people, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, maybe more, I, I'm not sure. Uh, and so the church was saying, hold on a second, you're letting a lot of these people into a casino where there's no ventilation, really. It's like, this is almost a perfect space for a virus to circulate, right? But you're still not letting churches meet. Uh, for more than 50 people. Why is that okay? Like even in a big service, like a big building, why is that okay? And the Supreme Court said, uh, we're not going to step in. We're, we're not going to stop Nevada from doing this right now. Uh, and I think that is problematic. I, I think it is problematic when you start treating churches differently than, than other types of uh, businesses or essential services. I mean, you know, churches are uh, places of worship that's protected by the First Amendment. Um, but again, church, you know, the First Amendment's not absolute. And so there should be restrictions on public or based on public health uh, for churches. And that's OK, so long as it affects everyone the same. Right. The, the term in the law is uh, a neutral law of general applicability. So as long as the law is neutral and it's applied evenly across different areas, then the courts are usually going to let that stand. Yeah. But as soon as we start treating churches differently for some reason, I think that's a problem. Yeah, sure. So is there is there an area where uh, it's OK for Christians to be civilly disobedient outside <laughs> of the realm of uh, that? They're just being just explicitly uh, just violating religious rights. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, the civil rights movement was a good example of this, uh, particularly if you're talking about the Imago Dei and you see, you know, your brother and sisters treated, you know, it, it made in the image of God, but treated less than that. Uh, I think that was a legitimate use of that. Um, I think you see some Christians who protest and, you know, get arrested outside abortion clinics who are just so convicted that this is a violation of that, uh, of the Imago Dei and, and the unborn treated in that way. Um but that is a tough one. Uh, you know, you look at Romans 13, we're, we're called to respect civil authorities and then obey those rules. Um, but I do think there are instances when, when, and it really, I do think it's a matter of, of conscience. Like, I don't think it's a one size fits all. Like there's going to be one church that says I need to protest this and another church that says, no, we're not there yet. Um, and so, yeah, I do think there's an area for that to happen. And, and we've seen it historically as well. And the civil rights movement, I think is the best example. Mm. Not necessarily, it, it wasn't necessarily as widespread as historically we would have wanted, but there was a good, uh, you know, push, especially, uh, you know, Southern churches uh, who got them, especially Southern black churches, like, well, we need to be disobedient now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Daniel, you, you, uh, you obviously thought about this stuff all day long. <laughs> you, you, you have time, you have, you have, a, you have a lot of time to, to ponder these thoughts, and we appreciate you uh you thinking about these things so like because it, it helps it helps me i uh think through think through things in the for the next 100 days which seems like mm -hmm. it, it seems like forever yeah man i'm happy happy to be a part of these conversations uh i think 
I, I don't pretend to, to have all the answers. I think there's a lot of other people out there who are more uh, plugged in than I am. But like you, I'm just wrestling. Dave, you know what we ought to do is we, we need to have you back on the show, Dan. Uh, we need to have you back right after the election. I want to talk to you first. For, for, I for wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> Let's do that. I don't want to know what people. I don't want people to think what know what I think. I want to know what the person who is in this thinks. Yeah, let's do it, man. I am here for that. I, you know, to kind of just co-sign on what Devon said. Like, it has been you know super informative, and I'm really excited for. Uh, you know, I have friends that we're having these same conversations, and um, just excited to hear you know their perspective. Um, after listening. And so I, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you took the time to be on, man. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Happy to do it. Good to be with you guys. Yeah. And I'm grateful that you're on. I'm sorry that you got to watch Portland not make the playoffs this year. <laughs> Basketball, basketball's back. We're happy that basketball's back just in time for that to happen. We are. And, you know, as a Blazers fan, I, I'm excited to have it back, but I'm fully expecting them to miss the playoffs in the most excruciating way possible. <laughs> I, lo- I love it. Uh, you're, you're probably- I'm a Reds and Bengals fan, so it's real. I Neither. understand. I think Neither. you are the only Portland fan I know, but you know what? <laughs> I got I to gotta appreciate it. I think people like Dane, but they just sound like the whole city. <laughs> <laughs> I, was bo- I was born into it. I don't have a choice. Yeah. That's true. Definitely. Well, hey, listen, we'll uh, we'll definitely also be, you know, thinking of you and your family as you guys get back into the swing of school and, you know, obviously as a professor and uh, being in the thick of uh, this political spectrum and your role as a professor. And so, um, you know, definitely uh, be on our hearts and, and minds as you guys are kind of moving back into the swing of things. So thanks, guys. Absolutely. All right, Dev. Well, hey, man, until next time. Peace. Peace.